This week on Pushback Talks, we're going to Southern Africa, to Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is probably best known for having been ruled by President Mugabe for 30 years, from 1987 to 2017. He was praised for having ended British colonial rule of the country, but critiqued heavily for his dictatorial governance. Mugabe was notorious for carrying out widespread forced evictions across the country. It's a small nation with just 14 million people, half of whom live in extreme poverty on less than 30 U.S. dollars a month. One in four live in informal settlements in urban centers. Zimbabwe is also one of the most corrupt countries on the planet, ranking in the top 20. This corruption is seen vividly in the housing sector, where corrupt land barons sell homes to poor Zimbabweans, homes that lack basic services and homes that are often demolished for having been built illegally. The situation is so bad, it was the subject of a recent judicial inquiry. But there is hope on the horizon. Pushback Talks interviews Francis Mukora, a journalist, democracy activist, and the advocacy coordinator at Community Alliance for Human Settlements in Zimbabwe, a social movement fighting for secure land and housing access and tenure. Francis talks to us about a new law he's been working on that the government has passed that identifies housing as a human right. I'm Frederick Gerton, and I'm the filmmaker. And I'm Leilani Farha, and I'm the advocate. And this is Pushback Talks. Leilani, you were the UN Special Rapporteur of Adequate Housing, and for six years you were traveling to a lot of countries, to all continents. You were not only flying to the, the rich north, you were also flying to the global south. That's true. And I know you were in Nigeria, for example, and you were in Egypt. Yes, uh, I don't know if you ever went to Zimbabwe, but I think today we should actually talk about Zimbabwe. It's And it's been a country that we've all heard a lot about, but it's been sad stories. But today we're also going to talk about uh, resistance, people fighting back. To get to know more, we've invited Francis Mukura, who is journalist and democracy activist and a human rights campaigner in Harare, Zimbabwe. Welcome to Pushback Talks, Francis. Welcome, Francis. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure. It's a huge pleasure to be here. So what is cooking right now, Francis? What are you doing? What are you up to? Um, quite a lot of things are happening. I mean, like, like you have uh, mentioned that uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting country, a beautiful country. But in recent times, let's say probably over the past 20 years, Zimbabwe has been on the international spotlight for very wrong reasons. I mean, like things related to arbitrary displacements, the human rights record has not been their greatest. And we've also had uh, housing demolition starting from especially 2005, what was termed Operation Restore Order, that uh, Omuramba China in Shona, that, that's a native statement, it means clear the field. It entailed demolition of houses which were termed illegal structures. That was being done by government, both central and local government. And according to the United Nations, that led to the loss of housing and displacement of at least uh, 750,000 people mainly in major cities. Leilani, so here we have a, a country where the government is actually behind forced evictions and we're talking about 750,000 people being pushed out of their homes with a law. I mean, Zimbabwe has been known 
particularly for all of the Mugabe years as a country that stands in direct violation of the right to housing, in particular because of these policies of forced evictions. And Zimbabwe is like the worst case scenario because not only were evictions happening on a regular basis, as you said, Frederick and Francis, they were happening by law, a horrible law. I mean, I think it has been translated as the rubbish removal law, and it's like the people themselves were rubbish. Even though that's not necessarily what was intended, that's the implication. And we know under international human rights law, forced eviction is just simply a gross violation. Like there's no wiggle room, as we say. It is a violation. And so very, very harsh circumstances for so many people in Zimbabwe. Francis, have you been able to use this UN language in your struggle? Yeah, yeah international human rights law and uh, the United Nations diction kind of uh, help get an ear from the government. The Zimbabwean government did not accept or admit that we had internally displaced persons in Zimbabwe. They preferred uh, mobile and vulnerable persons. So that use of the UN language around uh, issues to do with that uh, displacement, and especially during the, the, the subsistence of what was called the government of national unity, which was composed by the ruling PF party, then led by former President Robert Mugabe, and the prime minister from the major opposition then they during that five-year period the use of the of that that un direction and bringing in of international players actually helped because for the first time in 2008 the government of zimbabwe actually admitted that there were internally displaced persons in zimbabwe which then led to the signing of the african union convention on assistance and protection of internally displaced persons in Africa. It's commonly known as the Kambala Convention. So I think the, the, the involvement of the international partners, especially the United Nations, played a, a huge role in the small steps that have been uh, made in Zimbabwe. I'm struck by the idea that a whole group of people can exist, internally displaced persons, but they're only recognized once we can put on them a formal label that has with it the force of human rights law. It's very interesting to me, you know, because these people exist and they're living the reality of in internal displacement, which is really harsh. They're basically homeless. Um, but until you get that official designation, then it's difficult to actually give them the rights that they need to survive. Exactly, and even prior to the official acknowledgement of the existence of internally displaced persons in Zimbabwe, I think it was difficult for even UN agencies, talk of IOM, UNHCR, it was difficult for them to be able to directly reach out to those people because there was, there was lack of that formal recognition from the government. You know, I, I worked a lot in Africa and in Southern Africa, and I was in, in Zimbabwe a long time ago. It's, it's a beautiful country. In Africa, and I mean also in the whole world where you've been working, Leilani, land, the ownership of land is very central. And in Southern Africa, a lot of land were owned by the white farmers who kind of were running the country in many ways, especially in Zimbabwe and still in South Africa. So the land issue is very central. And of course, what happened during Mugabe was that the land was then turned back to, to the people. Or that's supposedly to turn back to the people. But what I understand that this taking back the land to the people of the country turned into be more a corrupt move in some ways. Because I, when I see on the Transparency International uh, list that Zimbabwe is rated extremely 
high or you call it low <laughs> in rates of, of being a corrupt state. So taking away the land from the white farmers didn't really help the people. Is that true? Yeah, to a certain extent, both the manner in which the land was taken away from the, from the white commercial farmers and the way through which it was distributed, and I'm going to use that in quotes, the way through which it was distributed smacked a lot of corruption because you would notice that uh, one way or another, land is, is, is a resource that every citizen of a country should have access to on the basis of them being a citizen of that country. It's a birthright, so to speak. But then you would notice that during the fast track land reform program, it's mainly those who had political uh, muscle, those who had political connections, those who were affiliated to the ruling party, and those who had co close connections with the, 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 the leadership of the country had access to, the, to, to land. Some of them actually owned as many as probably 14 pieces of land, 14 um, farms as opposed to the one main uh, one farm policy so yeah in that aspect it was really uh, there was a, really a lot of corruption that was uh, that was associated with the whole process and even after that um when the government then started uh, claiming to take steps to address uh, corruption related to the first fast track land reform program you would still notice those things happening in fact uh, the best way for me to describe is to, to say land then became a tool that was used for political expediency a tool to sustain a system of political patronage whereby if you are not politically correct then you do not necessarily have that right to claim ownership or access to a land so yeah the bottom line in my opinion is that um, it, it, it's been a system that has been used to sustain a system of political patronage, which is corruption by any definition. And like you said, uh, just before we started the discussion, I was checking on the Co Corruption Perception Index, and for the past uh, maybe five years, Zimbabwe has not like significantly improved. And this is despite the promises that we have heard, the claims from the political leadership that uh, the priority is to try and address corruption in, in every sector of the economy of Zimbabwe. Mm. There were only... 21 other countries more corrupt than Zimbabwe, and Nigeria isn't one of them. So Zimbabwe is further down or higher up the list of corruption. But um, So Francis, do you want to be on the top or you want to be lower down? <laughs> <laughs> well, how does it work? How does it work? Uh, no, I, I definitely, I think um, as a country, I mean like the ordinary... Uh, uh, the ordinary Zimbabwean would love to be like, uh, no one wants corruption in their country because it's got uh, a lot of connotations on issues to do with access to uh, basic rights. We're talking of shelter, we're talking of uh, health, we're talking of good roads, and even the house demolition that we spoke about earlier on. I was looking at that report, um, the Uchenna Commission report, it's called, and I think our listeners would be interested to know that three billion that was lost money because of not the state not receiving monies for lands that the state had in their possession so they only received about 10 percent of the value of land that they gave away and that goes to that corruption and political patronage and all of that that money that could have come in would be money to support people in Zimbabwe. You have half of your population living in extreme poverty. You're a country of about 14 million, right? And about 
Seven and a half million people in Zimbabwe are living in what we call extreme poverty, which is living on $30 a month, 30 US dollars a month. So the criminality there is huge. In, and I'd, I'm not, I'm using that term in a general way, the criminality. It, it's a crime to, to not have secured those monies for people in Zimbabwe and now look at the poverty, right? It's... Um, it's a it's it's a tragedy actually. So oh. yes, it is a tragedy, and it's it's I mean it's a very dark story we are painting here. But Francis, you are also a part of of of, of the new future of the hope. So you have a new project running here. What is what are you working on now? A new a new policy, I understand. So the new policy is um, it's called the Zimbabwe National Human Settlements Policy. It was actually officially launched by the president of Zimbabwe on the it's it's uh, just last month on the second of November, and then the launch was a culmination of a what I would call a broad-based consultative process that started I think from as way back as 2016, that brought together a government the government of Zimbabwe through specifically the Minister of Housing. And we also had uh, UN agencies, uh, the International Organization for Migration in Zimbabwe was actively involved by providing, I think, technical support and resources for, for, for the policy to happen. And I think UN Habitat was also like, uh, directly involved in a number of civil society organizations, including um, my organization, the Community Alliance for Human Settlements in Zimbabwe was also involved. So it, it, it was kind of, uh, in terms of the way in which it was formulated, it was broad-based, it was inclusive. And um, in, in, in our opinion, it's Community Alliance for Human Settlements in Zimbabwe, and I know it's an opinion that's shared by a good number of civil society organizations in Zimbabwe. This, uh, the Zimbabwe National Human Settlements Policy is a policy with a substantial potential to address a, a, a number of the challenges that we've been facing in Zimbabwe relating to security of tenure, arbitrary displacements, um, access to housing, and even probably addressing issues to do with the corruption in the land sector. And most importantly, to transform uh, informal settlements in, in, in urban and peri-urban areas, and even in rural areas, to modern, habitable, and sustainable communities that are aspired under Sustainable Development Goal Number 11. So yeah, it's, it's in as far as we view it as a policy, I think it has got a lot of potential to address um, those challenges. But I should say, and I should emphasize this again, that um, the extent to which uh, the potential, because I said it still remains potential, can be realized, it depends upon uh, how and to what extent government and other non-state actors come together to to fully implement um, uh, this policy, and especially from uh, the, the perspective of the human rights uh, point of view, instead of uh, the commodification of uh, housing and human settlements. Yeah. So those are the, the, the conditions we should be made for this uh, good, otherwise good policy to be able to to realize the potential that it has. It's interesting that you mentioned commodification of housing, which is like be the, the whole film Push was about and what you've been talking a lot about, Leilani. So commodification in housing is also an issue in one of the poorest countries on the planet. And, and uh, so it, I think that's a good reminder for all of us that this is not 
something that happens in downtown London or in New York or so. This is actually happening also in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is in a very precarious position. And I, I like your framing, Francis, of the potential of this policy. Because when you're trying to transition, it's an opportunity for poor people, low-income people, to have secure human rights through their housing. But it's also an opportunity for the private sector to move in and exploit the situation. And that's where we end up with this commodification. So it will be really important to make sure that this is driven in a human rights way where the basic needs and the fundamental rights of low income and poor Zimbabweans are put first before the private interests of the commercial actors. Francis, it might be useful for our audiences to hear a little bit about some of the housing conditions in Zimbabwe. I've read some crazy stories like people purchasing dwellings on lands where there's no infrastructure. Maybe you could talk about that and just so people have a sense of how so many people in Zimbabwe are living. Yeah, that's been a reality, and that has to be looked at within the context of the corruption in the land sector that I spoke about. And for a fact, that's contained as well. Those conditions that you spoke about are also contained in the Uchena report that was submitted to the president. Okay. I'll give you an example. Due to land corruption with houses being sold, I mean like land being sold in wetlands, for instance, without roads, without water, without sanitation facilities. And for instance, you would have a community whereby you would have uh, a makeshift ablution facility that's being used as a toilet, being less than 20 meters away from the air well, a shallow well that is being used as a source of water for the same people. So just try and imagine how the dangers, the hazards that are being posed to the health of those communities. And sometimes we've also, due to the, to, to the effect of uh, climate change, we've also had situations whereby in Arari, and uh, we're talking of the capital city of Zimbabwe, we've had um, the blockage of the, uh, the sewer system, which has led to, during the rain season, flooding in urban areas. And this is also affecting uh, not only the informal settlement, but even the formal settlement that were there prior to the mushrooming of this informal settlement. Because now we've got pressure on the infrastructure, the sewer and reticulation system, most of which was uh, established during the colonial era. That was about 40 years ago. And it was designed to cater for a population of maybe half of the amount of people that we have in urban areas in Zimbabwe right now. So it's really a sorry situation, which I hope, like I said again, that uh, the human settlements policy is going to, to, to address going forward. Because these are conditions that are not habitable. These are conditions that are not fit for human habitation, and they've got to be, to be addressed going forward. Mm. I would think, because you were mentioning before uh, the, the commodification of housing, who, who are the forces where, that are putting money into land and, and housing in Zimbabwe right now. Are they all nationals or also international money coming in? Yeah, I think this is based, it's, it's, it's actually based on a discussion on a national television that we had last week and I was part of the panel. It was myself, it was the Minister of Housing and Social Amenities and there was also the President of the Habitat International Coalition. So according to the minister, and I'm, I'm talking about what he said during that conversation, was that 
um, part of the findings to bankroll the Zimbabwe National Women's Settlements Policy and improve the settlements is going to come from Treasury. But um, a, a, a significant portion is also going to be coming from private investors, including from across the from across the from across the globe. So at this point in time, I might not necessarily be able to say who exactly is going to be funding that, apart from government. And this is based on the confirmation from the minister. But one way or another, and within the context of the policy that has been adopted by the government of Zimbabwe to attract uh, foreign um, foreign direct investment including in the housing sector uh, my opinion is that we're going to be seeing like international players coming in or, or bringing in capital but I in most cases uh, fundamentally they will be driven by the need to try and make profit out uh, 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 out of their investment which is where the fee of commodification comes in i think it's really dangerous I have to say the in, that invitation, um, because there's no safeguards for that money. There's no nothing regulating that money. There's nothing. That's the problem with the global system and the the flow of global capital. No one. I mean, that's what the Pandora Papers were exposing. No one is is controlling this or monitoring this. I think you have to be on guard, <laughs> Francis. Yeah, and especially within the context of the levels of corruption that we have in Zimbabwe, it's something to be to be worried about. And uh, I think uh, it's actually a gap that there's got to be mechanisms to provide checks and balances. But I mean, on the other hand, if the minister says the only way we can do this, we have to invite foreign investors. I mean, that's a story. We can hear that in a city like mine here in Sweden. We need private sector to be a part, otherwise we can't pay it with the taxpayers' money. How do you counter that, Leilani and Francis? How do you counter arguments like that? I think it's actually correct at this point in time that governments don't have as much easy access to capital as investors do. I mean, money is cheap for investors. Um, although we did see in the pandemic that governments started printing their own money. So maybe we should query access to money of governments, uh, but it's just not acceptable for money to flow into housing, which is a human right, unless there are, as Francis said, checks and balances that are human rights checks and balances. That, to me, should be an absolute necessity. I don't know, Francis, what do you think? Is it possible? Can Could you create checks and balances in Zimbabwe around this? Yeah, definitely. I think, like you said, Lilan, it's, it's, it's an absolute necessity. It should actually be one of the fundamentals, uh, the, 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 the foundations upon which the entire process is rolled out upon. So in terms of providing transparency and accountability, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really possible. We've had a good number of, um, of uh, civil society organizations in Zimbabwe working on issues to do with uh, transparency and accountability, monitoring public debt, trying to hold uh, public institutions accountable. But I think uh, in terms of uh, the capacity, there are capacity gaps, especially on non-state actors. They need to be capacitated as well. And even use of the media, I think it's very critical to make it a point that out there, the world gets to know this is what is happening. And probably it could be, who knows, it could be another way of trying to 
uh, name exposed and shame whatever global capital is coming in or, uh, under corrupt um, circumstances. I think it's one of the ways through which this can be done. But yeah, briefly to answer your question in precise terms, I think it's it's, it's a huge ask, but I think it's very possible. It's, cool. It really is it's, possible. Uh, and I, it gives us hope. We need Definitely. some hope, Francis, because it's uh, the... The, the stories coming out from from uh, Zimbabwe and also for many places in Africa has been kind of sad stories where corruption is, is, is taking more and more uh, space and a lot of money is flooding out of the countries, but flooding in, I mean, money stolen in Africa lands in London or in, you know, and it's also, it keeps destroying wherever it lands. So it's like this, this little elite of super rich are destroying wherever they destroy in their original country and destroy where they land. So it, this is uh, something we have to stop, of course. And, I, it, and I, whenever we see this, the big leaks, this pattern becomes so clear uh, that, uh, that the elites are, are thieves, which is actually problem, problematic because it creates... It's not, I mean, it's not only that they have a luxury life. We can, you, they can have their stupid luxury life if they want. But they shouldn't leave their own country in destruction, and they couldn't, and they shouldn't come and and destroy the, the the rules of the market in the other countries. It's pathetic, really, and probably just to add on to about the issues to do with capacity. Uh, I think in Zimbabwe, we and I think in in a good number of countries as well, there. Um, like constitutional uh, legal institutions. In the case of Zimbabwe, we've got the Zimbabwe Anti-Corruption Commission. Uh, and I think Zimbabwe just recently uh, uh, adopted, the president launched the, the anti-corruption uh, strategy 2021 to 2025. It's, it's a five-year strategy. So I think it's another area that needs to, 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 to capacity building, to strengthen the constitutional commission to see if it can be able to be more effective in the way that it deals with corruption but most importantly i think what is most needed is to mobilize the political will and once that political will is secured and guaranteed then give the freedom for this state institution to be able to decisively deal with um, with corruption i also understand that you are in talks with the minister of housing in your country so i guess can you get on, on a common ground on how to, to move forward, because moving forward also means go against the, the corrupt forces? Yeah, definitely. I think, like I said, uh, I was uh, part of a panel discussion. In fact, it was supported by my organization, Community Alliance for Women's Settlements in Zimbabwe. Probably spent about an hour discussing, sharing notes with the, with the Minister of National Housing and from the discussion that we have had, um, his uh, perception is that uh, we are welcome and probably we should be able to sit down at some point in time to discuss how best we can collaborate and how best we can also add value towards the realization of the potential that the policy has. My, at a personal level as a journalist and also coming from the civil society sector is to be able to confront the situation on the basis of truth and facts. And these facts include the fact that um, corruption has to be tackled. There also has to be an outside eye. It doesn't have to be from within the government only. It also has got to be from outside uh, players, like ourselves, the civil society, and even the international community. 
to say how best do we provide objective feedback i think for us as a nation to be able to move forward and progress we need to address this thing. we don't need to sugarcoat those things we need to be able to point out and also to suggest solutions francis we in this podcast we try to find inspirational people from around the world and hopefully they can you can inspire others so do you have any inspiration coming in from other countries how people take the same struggle as you do do you get any do you have any examples that you see wow this is what they're doing in south africa is cool or what they're doing in mozambique or do you have anything like you see that wow it's good that you've already mentioned south africa i was straight away going to point out to south africa they've got their own share of problems with regard to housing and the sheikhs in the slum settlements but I think, in my opinion, South Africa is a, is a country have uh, tried to... They, they've got a policy that's similar to the one that we just adopted in Zimbabwe. And I think they've been taking, like, um, commendable steps towards addressing issues to do with housing. But more specifically, I would um, point out to, from the civil society perspective, I would point out to there is a social movement in South Africa called Abashali Basem Jondilo. We we have not like collaborated or reached out to them directly, but they are a huge inspiration. We've been following the work that they have been doing and we've been drawing lessons in especially in particular to how best we can push for the right to 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 housing. And we are talking of habitable housing. And I think the, this conversation that we are having here right now it's it's, it's another opportunity as well because as an institution, as community alliance for human settlements in Zimbabwe, we are drawing uh, obviously a lot of uh, experience and uh, drawing from the, the the vast experience that Lilan has working as the UN special rapporteur on on national housing. So these are things that we could probably like suggest to even the power that be the minister of housing whenever we're going to meet here to say, look, uh, we have uh, like working relationships with the institutions and people who have got experience in these issues. Why don't we try and also learn from them and continue to push for the human rights approaches yeah we are all happy for leilani with us this is what it's all about is she she is an inspiration but she you're is, also yeah. an inspiration francis thank you so thank you. thank you for your for your great work in zimbabwe and and please keep us posted because this is something we want to follow we want good news to fly out from zimbabwe we want zimbabwe back as an inspiration and you are a you're a part of it. So, so thank you for your good work. And Leilani, this was again Pushback Talks. It was. I feel inspired. Francis is doing really good work in very, very difficult circumstances. So I feel even though it's tough, Zimbabwe is tough, Francis is tough too. So you now I can carry on. I'm, we're, I'm heading into my weekend. So I feel okay. I have I'm an idealist too, and thank you guys. It's, 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 it's yeah. really inspiring. <laughs> thank you very mm. much. Yeah. Leilani, just, normally we will just ask how we fund this. We have, we have listeners in 120 countries, which means also a lot of countries in Africa we have listeners. But Leilani, how do we fund this global podcast? Well, we don't, <laughs> but we're trying to. <laughs> we're trying to. Uh, we have a Patreon account. And if you, wherever you download the podcast, you'll see a link to Patreon and you can look us up and you can give us a little bit of love through money, right? But it can be a small amount. It can be $1 yeah. and it is still an act of love. So exactly. you don't have to be rich to be our friends. So that's a good thing. So anyway, thank you both of you for this uh, 
little interchange between Harare, Ottawa and Malmo, Sweden. It's like little triangle of love there. So thank you very much, uh, Francis, and thank you, Leilani. Thanks, Frederick. Thanks, Francis. Pushback Talks is produced by WG Film. To watch Push, visit pushthefilm.com. You can also support us by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash pushbacktalks. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you again next week.